Hi, I'm Ella Frasmith and welcome to the Unequal Truths podcast, where we hear from successful professionals currently working in the market research industry who, like me, entered from low-income backgrounds. Listen in as guests share their personal journeys in market research and we explore what we can all learn from their experiences to help our industry become more inclusive. Today I'm talking to Comrade Kaleo and you've worked in market research for what, 20, 20 years or so. You started off really similarly to me, which I think is fascinating, in that you applied for the graduate scheme at uh, Mori um, and were unsuccessful the first time round and got offered a temporary executive assistant job. And then you applied internally and then you were successful, which is basically exactly the same that happened to me. So I think that's interesting. And you were at Ipsos for quite a long time. How long were you there for? Well, I was there um, six years all told, although I did take a break for a year in the, in the middle of that. Um, so five years uh, actual service. <laughs> actual service. Sounds like the military, yeah. Okay, exactly. so <laughs> five years service. It was all very... And then, so, and then you left, didn't you, to a smaller agency, Sparkler. And were you there for... How long were you there for? About three years, yeah. Okay, and then after that, you decided to go freelance, and you said that was sort of partly out of choice, but partly kind of personal reasons. So you did that for a bit, and how long were you freelance? And then when did you take the plunge to set up Craft, uh, the, the uh, business that you've you've owned and run with Alex Charlton now for for a quite a long time, right? Yeah, almost ten years. It's uh, wow. been up to ten years. So yeah, I know. <laughs> right. <laughs> so uh, uh, right. So why did I decide to go freelance? And when did it? Um, as you said, it was kind of partly choice, partly circumstance. I was freelance for about two years, and I really enjoyed it. And it allowed me to uh, to do a masters while I was sort of working, which is something that I wanted to do. The masters and work was a good way of helping to fund that and also keeping my oar in. And then it was just total luck that um, Alex happened to be selling his business and sort of approached me to see if I would be interested in setting up with him and said yeah gave it a go um, it was never meant to be a really long term project but like most things in life they don't really go the way that you expect them to um, <laughs> which is fine not a problem uh, and then here we are almost 10 years on and a relatively successful micro agency yeah, very um, successful, yeah. right? I don't think we're, you know, very successful. You've won lots of awards. Most recently, the Ginny Valentine Badge of Courage Award. Tell us a little <laughs> bit, really briefly, just about that. Well, that. That's a bit of an embarrassing one in, in some sense. <laughs> you it's, keep saying it's, it's, it's not just, yeah, it's not just shameless self-promotion. You, um, you, you're nominated for that award. A good friend of mine, Steve, yep. nominated me for that. And I was lucky enough to win. The reason, the reason uh, that was given for me winning it was, and I quote, the tenacity to uh, represent the voices of minorities in research, which is something that I was quite proud of, I suppose, yeah. without trying to sound too uh, self-aggrandizing. And uh, and yeah, so, so that, that was nice to be recognised as something that is not just about the work itself, I suppose, and the sort of commercial bits and doing good research, but actually fighting the good fight, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, and relevant to, to what we're talking about today as well. Yes, yeah, and it's uh, it's something that I think, as, as we've discussed, will probably become clear why it's why I find it a subject quite close to my heart. Yeah, um, yeah. So yeah, 
very relevant, very relevant. Cool, I'm sure we'll touch upon that a bit later. But before we start in earnest, I'm asking everyone just some sort of quick fire questions, just so people can hear some random stuff about you as well before we get <laughs> you've ambushed me I have I know I know I know I'm doing it to everyone right, so yeah, top of mind so what's your favorite color green star sign Taurus favorite animal manta ray manta ray okay okay, yeah. okay. all right favorite yeah. food pizza <laughs> and good, good pizza good <laughs> Who would you want to play you in a movie of oh, your life? Who would I want to? I'm going to reframe the question because I'm terrible at movies. I don't get to watch enough of them. But um, uh, <laughs> I've been told I look very much like Danny Dyer. Let's <laughs> go with Danny Dyer. <laughs> I never, I've never made that comparison before. Now I'm going to have to double check Thank after you. the interview. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, Thank you very much. I, uh, I appreciate that. And if you could have a superpower, what would you like to, to have? Uh, oh, invisibility, 100%. Okay. You did well. You did well on the quickfire ambush there, so so um, <laughs> we can move on. <laughs> All right. So, I mean, the first thing I suppose it would be useful for sort of the listeners to hear is, is how you would kind of describe your background and particularly what about it made you feel um, different when you entered the industry, the market research industry. Okay, cool. I'll, I'll try not to take up the entire hour with my answer. <laughs> um, so, my background. I am a born and bred Londoner. My mum is from Poland and uh, arrived in this country in 1976. Um, my dad was from Chile and um, was exiled politically. He was a political refugee from the Pinochet regime. In, I'm not sure how... how um, how aware you are of the coup and all that kind of stuff, but that was quite a big deal back mm-hmm. in the day um, around that time. And many, many Chileans were uh, captured, tortured, killed, or if you were lucky, exiled, um, which my dad was. So, and didn't return, was not able to return back until uh, 1988. So 15 years, uh, uh, I might say return back to visit. Not mm-hmm. He never went back to live there. Anyway, so I was, I was born and bred here, uh, in London, in the UK, and I am British and fully British, but I am kind of a, a, a I suppose, a second-generation immigrant with who, if you didn't know that and you didn't see my name written down, you'd probably just assume I was English. And I think that has, in itself, posed some challenges for me. The other thing is that both my parents, my, my, my dad came from a very, very poor background, but was but actually managed to get an education and, um, in the end, become a civil servant. Um, and an activist in Chile, hence the exile. And my mum grew up in a communist country where essentially there wasn't really much idea of class, but she would come from pretty sort of the earth background. But again, in a communist country, that didn't really stop you being educated. So I came from a very low-income background in this country, but with relatively educated parents. Mm. And it doesn't quite... I think the difficulty that some... English people find, uh, or British people find, in trying to locate someone like me, Mm -hmm. uh, and I find, and maybe I'm projecting here in trying to locate someone like me, is that those things don't map nicely onto our class system, (laughs) uh, which is very very much in 
in force. So what, what I found difficult or different about myself when I went to um, work in a, a proper office job, as I would call it, my first proper office job, mm. would be that I didn't really feel any kinship or that I was understood at all in terms of my background that, you know, why does he speak like this? Why does he, you know, he doesn't seem to really understand what it is to be middle class, <laughs> you know, yeah. and, and all the codes and conventions of communication and being, and, and a lot of that, this isn't about me feeling discriminated against or benighted. This is about me having to learn certain ways of being mm-hmm. to, I suppose, fit in. So, so that's kind of how, how I started. And, and also, like, just culturally, and this is something that I think a lot of second generation immigrants of colour can, can navigate this a whole lot more easily. But if you're in an ethnic minority of one, like me, mm. uh, you don't have a huge community to fall back on. And also your skin colour does not immediately signal to people that you are different or mm. other. And that is a privilege in some ways. But actually makes things more difficult in other ways that there are certain assumptions that are made of you because you are white and you speak with an English accent that you will be white English. Mm. When actually culturally you're not so it's a long rambling answer, but that's uh, yeah, no, fascinating. Uh, that's, that's, that's my style. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, and a really interesting point that you that you raised there. I mean, what, yeah, I'd love to unpack that a little bit more um, in terms of sort of not looking like people might anticipate someone like you to look like. E.g., you look white British, but you're not. Could you tell me a bit more about how that's been? how that's played out for you? Yeah, I, I, I suppose, I think subconsciously, that there, are, there are ways of acting, behaving and communicating especially. And, and this isn't necessarily just down to my ethnicity or my background, this might just me being the way that I am. I, mm. I can have a tendency to rub people up the wrong way sometimes because I communicate very directly, mm. which is a particular aspect of Slavic communication, I suppose. But, you know, put another way, British people have got an excellent way of speaking around the bush. And you see it on, you know, in these kind of memes that, you know, you find on social media about what, what a British person says and what a British person actually means mm-hmm. and, and those kind of things. And I, I was not very good at that and, and didn't really understand it and was far too direct and annoyed people. And, and, and I think because I look and sound, like one would expect somebody who understands those codes and conventions to behave. It was just taken as having a difficult personality, I suppose, Mm. you know, and and, and being a bit difficult and a bit bullshit, which which all may be true (laughs) as well. But it took took me a long time to learn to operate in these environments in a way that, and and, and I think there was not much understanding or any understanding of why I wasn't like that. Mm. And, and I think that there are lots of things in that, which which is not necessarily just about me, or just applies to me, but just applies to, I suppose, a certain monoculture in, um, well, I suppose, generally in professional services in the UK. I agree <laughs> with everything you're saying, and I can relate to quite a lot of what you're saying in some ways. Certainly, sort of the um, not quite fitting in to the assumptions that people make around sort of the class system and what your background, how to place you in the right box and not quite fitting in the right way, and people not really knowing what to make of that or making assumptions about you based on how you look, which are incorrect, maybe. And then, yeah, that, that, so yeah, I'm fascinated by that. And I wondered how much energy had to go into that for you that kind of learning those codes or the, the language or how to be and 
what the impact of that was for you? Yeah, I think, well, the answer to that is a lot of energy, and and, and, it, and it's exhausting because there's also, the, you know, there's also quite a deep-seated insecurity in that, I think, that it, it might not even be that people are thinking this of you, or it is that way, you know, but but, but you believe it, you know, mm-hmm. it, it's the classic sort of, the outsider looking in might think you've got a chip on your shoulder, but actually you're just deeply insecure and that confidence because you don't know how to navigate this world at all, and there's no system set up for you to be able to navigate it and also you're not signaling to anybody outwardly visually or or, or even you know with your voice that, 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 that you are you know different and so yeah it, it can be exhausting I, 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 without meaning, meaning to sound arrogant and it's not like I ever knew it all and I don't know it all now but I never found anything particularly difficult about mm-hmm. working in research from a technical perspective mm-hmm. I think I was well wired to be able to do it and well trained to be able to do it academically as well, given given my sort of academic background. And I've always found it interesting and wanted to learn it, the technical skills of the job. That that wasn't the bit that I found difficult. That I've always taken that in my stride with the usual strengths and weaknesses that any one individual would have. Mm-hmm. But um, the the bit that you refer to is the bit that I found really difficult and really exhausting and took up lots and lots of energy and lots and lots of angst and reflection. <laughs> and um, I think it's probably, it's interesting that like, as I've become a father and middle-aged and become one of those middle-aged blokes who just doesn't really care anymore, I've found myself <laughs> feeling a whole lot, a whole lot more confident about mm. Just, just, just being me. Yeah, well, it's funny. I sound like a, teen, I sound like a teenager. <laughs> yeah, no, but as, I mean, I've heard that. So you're the third person I've spoken to for this podcast, and and you're the third person who's sort of said that, not in in the exact same words, but just that actually, the longer they they've been in their career, just the more comfortable, and and also not only the more comfortable, the, the benefits of just being able to just more more readily be themselves in their work lives and actually sort of the real benefits of that have become clearer to, to everyone. So that's, that's fascinating. Would you say along the way that you've had to sort of adapt in certain ways in order to, to be successful and, and if so, any sort of tangible kind of examples of of this yeah 100 percent. i think the, the nicest way i can put it i think is i had to knock the edges off myself I've, I've got two groups of friends i don't want to put it like this i've got two groups of friends well, one group of friends who i went to school with mainly who are you know classic you know everyone's working in professional services you know in some way or other you know university educated or whatever um but then i've got another group of friends who are more from where I'm from, if you want, from the mm. estate I grew up on and, and sort of from around there, from the football team that I support and who I still see on a regular basis. And I, I'm the only person with, with, with even with A-levels amongst that group. And I suppose my style of being and communicating and all my cultural frames of reference and everything, at least part of me is framed, is, is, is kind of influenced by that group so I mean without meaning to be too disparaging to anybody uh, it's not meant in that way at all it would be a bit like you dropped white van man into a um, well maybe not white van man but that kind of thing or you know someone someone fresh off the council estate into the middle of a very middle class middle of the road market research industry and so I had to knock all those edges off in terms of language I still swear like I shouldn't 
uh, <laughs> but uh, I tried to keep that to a minimum. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's just being rude. But you know, not being direct, learning certain ways, like I said, ways of being, being indirect. You know, learning all the British and English way, middle class ways of giving somebody feedback in a nice way that isn't going to hurt their feelings, um, mm-hmm. asking somebody to do something in an indirect way. You might want to do this. It might be a good idea if, rather than go and do. <laughs> um, you know, those, those kind, which I don't see a problem with. Still. You know, we're all friends. We're all mm-hmm. starting from the basis that we're working for the same goal, but it doesn't seem to work. So, yeah, so, so it's that kind of stuff that I think I've, I've had to, to sort of try, try and knock all that on the head a bit while, while still trying staying true to myself and my identity, which I value, I suppose, and I see great values in it. And having to shut up as well, I think, sometimes. Yeah, that's the other thing. Mm. I remember when I first started at, uh, at Mori, and the code for places we don't want to go, uh, face-to-face researchers or working-class people who we don't really like, and, you know, the word chav would be used, whatever, was live on a council estate. And at the time, I still was living on it. In fact, I still live on a council estate. I just happened to own a flat in one. But um, mm-hmm. the code for that was a council estate. And it used to absolutely boil my blood because there's so many good things about living on a council estate. Not all council estates are the same. They're not all sink estates. There's, but, it, but it was just, you know, it, it's in a totally unconscious bias mm. of people who have really grown up in a nice suburban house. They just used this kind of term really disparagingly, and I, I could never let it lie because mm. it, it cut it cut right through me, right to my through to the centre of my identity, and and, and I saw so much virtue in in the way that I was brought up and the collective kind of mentality that the council state that I grew up on had, and the, the, her- the everyday sort of heroism of people who were really struggling, you know, and all that kind of stuff, and for it to just be used so loosely and thoughtlessly and disparagingly. Without anyone really meaning anything horrible by it, there's so, so much horribleness in it. Mm. Uh, yeah, so, so I, that's an example. I just wanted to shut up and not not kick off every time someone said it. <laughs> yeah, and so did you though initially? Like, what, is that yeah. something yeah. right? And yeah. how would that <laughs> tell me about how that um, went down? Like, what what? So so you were kind of quite open about where where you were from when you first entered. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I was, yeah, and I was, yeah, I, I, yeah, and, and I, I think probably I didn't do it in the right way, but also the world wasn't quite the same as it is now, and mm. people weren't open to that message. And also, like I said, a lot of it's unconscious and well-meaning. You know, you couldn't get a more well-meaning place than Mori when I was there. I mean, it was, you know, liberal left middle class at least to the core. Mm. And so people being confronted with what you're talking about how dare you (laughs) didn't like it didn't want to hear it because at that point I'm attacking them for being an ist of some sort you know Mm, a classist or a snob or whatever and and, yeah I'm sure it rubbed a lot of people up the wrong way and and just operationally derailed a lot of (laughs) and working sessions which is probably not not right looking Mm. back on it but I felt I had a point to prove I suppose are there any other kinds of ways in which you know talking about sort of unconscious bias maybe or prejudice that that people aren't necessarily always consciously aware of any other ways you experience that having a negative impact not just on you but um for me i'm concerned as well about the the work that we're producing and where that goes and how that shapes 
society on so many levels. And I just wondered if you have any examples of, of how of Pumps, seeing that. Pumps. This is my bugbear. <laughs> yeah, please tell me. <laughs> You've opened the can of worms now. Good. And, and, and this is kind of, again, without blowing my own trumpet, this is partly what the award was for, mm. right? And then this is, this, is why, this is why that meant quite a lot to me. We at Craft, and I in particular, have um, somehow managed to carve a niche from specialising in sort of working with media and technology clients and then branching out into a bit more sport and entertainment. We've ended up doing a lot of diversity and inclusion work. Mm-hmm. And that is... Um, inclusion of lots of people, different kinds of people. We've done work with disabled women and girls about their participation in football. We've done similar with uh, with women and girls about participation in cricket, South Asian women and girls about participation in cricket. We've done stuff for the Cabinet Office about marginalised young Muslim men and their sort of the, the, the appeal or otherwise of um, narratives of uh, in the radicalization, we've done a lot, lots of work amongst the, I'm doing air quotes, lower socioeconomic group communities. We've done, yeah, uh, lots of work with the AME. So across the board, almost totally, you know, we, we've addressed lots of issues of, of diversity and inclusion. And the unconscious biases that, that come from our industry, this is where I, I start to lose my rag. Mm-hmm. Um, because you end up with one of two tendencies I've seen. Uh, some of them are well-meaning, often they're well-meaning, often they're unconscious, but you end up with two keys, uh, paternalism or patronising, and that patronising is uh, is really slash snobbery. And I, I think we are, as, as, as an industry that is essentially meant to represent voices, we are very good at it. And one of the reasons we are very good at it is because there are a, a, there is this monoculture and there is this idea that people that we are good at understanding others, and therefore even the most well-meaning pieces of some of the, some of the most well-meaning pieces of work I've seen are um, deeply problematic because they're patronising. I, 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 I just think that there are too many people in our industry who are uncomfortable. And this isn't, this isn't an industry. It is an industry problem, but it's a symptom of a wider problem that we, we just don't get out of our bubbles anymore. Yeah. You know, social mobility is poor easy to stay in our bubbles physically and mentally and for researchers that is poison yeah i agree and um can relate i've certainly been enraged sometimes myself (laughs) in analysis sessions for example where people are just saying things you know very matter of fact and uh even on field work actually before i (laughs) did This is this was a really bad one on field work. I remember being in field with another interviewer, and we were interviewing someone in Sheffield, I think it was, and and it was um you know someone from a lower income group, and we were driving to she was a young mum I think, and we were driving to pick up her her daughter from school, and as we were driving round, the other interviewer just decided to say, uh, oh look at all these satellite TV dishes everywhere. <laughs> Um, you know, and like really, but like quite in quite a oh, sort classic. of disparaging way. And I was just like, are you really saying this to this participant yeah. when we're in her car? And she's like, telling, like, are you for real? I, yeah. And I, I obviously I couldn't, I just kept, I just, there was no point saying anything at that point in the moment with the participant there. But I just thought, oh my gosh, like really... Anyway, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, had, I had a similar experience, which is quite funny because actually my, the, the estate I grew up on borders the train line to um, from London Paddington to, to, to the West Country to Bristol, and I, I, mean, I was going to Bristol on field road with somebody uh, again, uh, a colleague, 
lovely colleague, my lover. I'm still in touch with her. I'm still in touch with her now. Um, and uh, it was the World Cup. And uh, as we as we literally passed by my estate quite slowly because it's not too far from Paddington Station, there were lots of crosses of St George flying because it was the World Cup. Yeah. And she looked out of the window, and I can't remember exactly when, but it was like look at it, it was essentially look at all those chaps flying, you know, like <laughs> yeah. the racist chaps flying, uh, flying. And I did say to her, oh, it's funny to say that was, uh, that's where I live, <laughs> 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 which which made it a bit awkward for a little while. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, I mean. Yeah, I, I think. I mean, get, going back to going back to sort of what was the question that you asked. I think the reason that was given for the, the, that sort of I don't, I don't want to even bring the word. I just think it's interesting that the, that the bit that was recognised in it wasn't the doing of the research actually, which was part of it. But the bigger part that they said was the communicating of it back mm, yeah. and having the courage to stand in front of clients who were paying your way and say essentially rip up their objectives, which I had to do a couple of times and say, you're not gonna you're not gonna get anywhere with what you're trying to do by the schemes that you are thinking of or the initiatives that you're thinking of or the work that you're thinking of doing until you change how you think mm. and the organization thinks. Because everything that you're doing is predicated on false assumptions, unconscious biases and you are doomed to failure until you sort those out. And I've given that message a number of times. But to be fair to my clients, to be fair to my clients, they all took it on board. Right, which is amazing. But but had it not been you, you know, someone who shared those unconscious bias wouldn't have been able to see them, right? <laughs> well, it's funny you should say that because one of the last pieces of work that I've done this for actually no primary research at all. It was a knowledge review. Big, very big knowledge review looking at thousands of pages of insight work and other kind of work and outreach work and not all lots of it was good and lots of it and all of it was technically sound lots of it was actually good but much of it replicated these unconscious biases and this had been flying under the radar for i think i've seen probably five years worth of knowledge and mm-hmm. probably 80 to 90 percent of it was unconsciously biased i would say mm-hmm. and you could see it in the metrics I'm not, I'm not at liberty to actually say exactly what it was, but you could see it in the metrics that this for, for vast amounts of money and effort pumped at a problem, the dial wasn't moving at all. Mm-hmm. And my assessment or our assessment upon analysis was it's no wonder the dial's moving, not moving, because the way that you framed it all is wrong. Yeah. You know, to be direct, it was wrong and um, uh, incorrect. I don't mean morally wrong, I mean incorrect. Mm-hmm. And therefore, you know, it's doomed to failure. Yeah. So the business case for that is undeniable, right? <laughs> you know, like the, the well, yeah, ultimately, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I mean, I, I'm really pleased to hear that clients are very responsive to that, and then again, that makes me say it just reinforces the message that as an industry, I, I put, I feel like we need to take a closer look at, at what we're doing. I mean, I would say some clients, my clients in these instances were, but there are lots of clients who don't want to hear it mm. and there are lots of junior clients especially who don't want to hear it I find because mm. it makes their job difficult and they've got to go to their boss and say do you know what you know you know, we sent this agency out to do X or they've come back saying Y and that we're all wrong mm. and there have been instances not necessarily in this sphere where that's just led to a loss of business and you think mm. you're doing the right thing <laughs> but there are no shortage of other agencies who will toe the party line I suppose Mm. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? And I think 
for me, I, I'm trying to, I feel like there's a real business case to say, well, I hope, I hope, I mean, I don't know, I'm uh, trying to stay positive, but society generally is sort of shifting, or, and I feel like we are at a bit of a moment of um, things being questioned that uh, maybe go un- have gone unquestioned uh, by a majority for quite a long time, and I don't know, you know, if you even look at what's happening in America right now, there's, there's suddenly coming into a more mass consciousness about certain issues, yeah, I think that's right. I think the wheel, the wheel is turning. I'm not sure where we're going for a moment. I don't mm. like moments. I don't like ruptures because I don't think work life works like that. But the, the wheel is definitely turning. I'm hoping that that is going to start to play out, you know, everywhere, but also, you know, in the industry we work in and that we're going to see more proact- proactively sort of diverse of people trying to create agencies that are more diverse and therefore, you know, the more established are going to have to sort of step up as well because it's it's going to impact the bottom line ultimately. <laughs> um, I, I hope so, and that. I think that that's the point. You know, I, I think that, that, that's absolutely right, and I think that that's it. I don't know if you're uh, familiar with Mark Whitson, but he's you know he's a sort of he's controversial, straight talking. Yeah. He's a straight talking professor of marketing. He, he, the last thing he wrote actually is really interesting about how fed up he is of the sort of social media virtue signaling of brands when it comes to the, the current situation in the States. And I couldn't agree more with you and with him that, that ultimately it is about doing it in your operation. This is about walking the walk, not talking the talk, mm-hmm. right? This isn't about having a diversity policy and ticking all the boxes or nodding sagely at a conference when people talk about it and then walking off and doing everything exactly the same way. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that I am, I can get cynical about this as well, which I don't mean to, but I think that there can be a lot of virtue signaling. Every, you know, as you say, the, word, the wheel is turning and that is a good thing, right? Whether we are getting into a place where some of these issues are becoming mainstream and better understood and, and more valued. Mm-hmm. But I think there is also a case that there are many instances where people feel they need to be seen to be saying something and mm-hmm. doing something. But actually, what difference does it make when they go back to their desk? What difference does it make when they hire someone? You know, in, 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 in the case that we're talking about, a sort of class and that's the right word, socioeconomic status. If you, you know, I have no doubt that there are still many, many people who would rather take the middle class, university educated person rather than taking a risk on somebody and uh, in the name of cognitive diversity, you know, and, and that's actually where it matters. Yeah. You know, who are you going to give the job to? Who Are you willing to invest the time in training that person up in a way that you wouldn't need to? You know, do you have the systems in place to train somebody who hasn't got a university education, but is deeply intelligent, just mm-hmm. in a different way? And I, and I think what I find interesting is actually in the independence in the independent sector, you've got much more cognitive diversity, I think, than you do agency side. That's interesting. Why do you think that is? Because because those people don't find a home and they want to go off and do their own thing and they know that they can <laughs> and they can find a niche and yeah. they can and they can get up and running and do it themselves. In what ways do you think your background might be an advantage? Are there advantages? A hundred percent, hundred percent. I think it's easier to be an original thinker. Mm-hmm. I think it's easier to empathise, or at least to, to to see difference. I think you take much less for granted. You know, what, what, if I speak about myself, I don't want to speak for other people. But the fact that I have essentially three cultural backgrounds, you know, from being born and bred here, so I am British. I get to some degree what it's like to be British. I don't need to read watching the English to 
be able to reflect on the English condition. It's a great book. Love it. <laughs> you know, and, and, and deep, but, but, but I, I, uh, none of that is assumed to me. Yeah. So I think I, I found that hugely useful in my, in my career. Equally, uh, I found it very, I think I find it quite easy to talk to people of different backgrounds because I understand difference. Mm-hmm. I don't, you know, I, I've sat, when, when I sat down with, you know, like, you know, on, on the project I was talking to you about, about the Islamic terrorism stuff, I, I'm clearly not Muslim. I don't face any of the issues that some of the boys that I was talking to or hearing from faced and, you know, sort of made mates over the best part of a year with some of these guys. But being able to say to some degree, not I understand what it's like to be you, but I have had some sort of, I, I, I can at least share your frame of reference. Mm-hmm. and understand how that's different to mine. I think that's that is invaluable, really invaluable. Yeah. What can people in the industry do to improve things? I think, well, I think it's a classic, don't judge a book by its cover, <laughs> if you can, uh, if you possibly can. I, I think appreciating cognitive diversity, I know I've used that phrase a number of times, but I think that, that's really, really important. And then, mm-hmm. and then like, your, your organisation will be enriched by having different perspectives and different points of view. Accept that, you are going to have to spend time training people and maybe understanding how that is done. I think that's a real blind spot. I think there's a certain assumption that people come from a certain... I don't even think it's an assumption. It's an implicit assumption. No one's sitting there thinking everyone comes from the same background as me, therefore this is the way we do it. But it's just the systems are set up that way. I mean, I would love to see, you know, what whether anyone, any agency or anyone in the industry has really thought about training people who are not university educated. You know, like, uh, is, is, uh, is that written down anywhere? Has anyone given it any thought? Has anyone done it? It might be that they have. I don't know that it hasn't been done. I'm sort of assuming that it hasn't been done. Mm-hmm. But I think that, that those two things, and I think to a certain degree, you have to be willing to go out of your way a bit for this. And I think that's sometimes why it doesn't happen. It's mm-hmm. just a bit too much hard work, you yeah. know, but it does, it, I'm, sure, I'm sure it will pay back. Yeah. And then, but then there are people, you know, <laughs> who I'm speaking, some of whom I'm speaking to, you know, uh, who do come from and have been in the industry. And I guess the next sort of question really is about what we can learn and thinking again, you know, about your own experiences, what, what could have or would have been helpful to you personally? Ah, oh, that's a good question. See, I, I don't think I've suffered, you know, it, it really. I, I, I don't like to sort of play the victim. So what would have been helpful? This is a really wishy-washy answer, but I think just a bit more understanding. But that is such an, oh, that's such an individual thing. I can name you, you know, I'm going to use a really horrible phrase now, you know, like tons of microaggressions <laughs> that, yeah. I have, uh, that, that I have sort of um, suffered, I suppose, you know, uh, been on the end of, let's put it that way, I want to mm. say been on the end of. They're all just one-to-one interactions, really. It mm. makes me feeling bit shit, if I can say that on your podcast. Yeah, you can, you can. Um, and, um, yeah, and it, yeah, and it, and it, but I don't think anything could have been done about that apart from changing people's mindset, which I'm not sure is the industry's job, fundamentally. I think at the end of the day, if everyone were a little bit more open-minded to questions of diversity and understand that diversity isn't just about BAME, LGBT, QI, or, or gender, and that there mm. are things, you know, that white people can be diverse too, and immigrant backgrounds and different cultures, that's diversity too. And even if you are just a bit different, that's diversity too. And seeing it in those terms. But beyond being a bit more open-minded, I struggle 
to answer that question. Yeah, yeah, no, it's okay, and it's interesting, as you're saying it. I mean, yeah, I, I, I don't feel like I've been particularly treated bad, or I also don't feel like a victim. I guess it's just that extra workload that we sort of talked about, and those little microaggressions that, yeah, no, I, I don't feel, you know, victimised by it, but, but it's still... If we could, if there could be something done to minimise those, and I think you're right, you know, it probably is about understanding or whatever. But yeah, it's and and I think again, you know, this is partly why it's difficult because it's difficult to pin down and it's difficult to find an answer. Yeah, we need some tangible, actionable outcomes, and I find it very difficult in this space to actually say that because it's such a big space and it's so, you know. Uh, I'd say I, I sometimes I'm not comfortably comfortable with the word diversity, actually, mm. because it's kind of like it, it, it's kind of it's become loaded in, in in terms of what it actually means, you know. And, and, mm-hmm. and, and, and really, it's just about difference. And other, you know, I mean, how, how do you get people? How do you get people to value and tolerate difference? Is a huge question. That, I mean, <laughs> yeah. it, it nests it, it nests within something that's bigger than much, much bigger and much more important in some ways than market research. You know, it's just kind yeah, of. Yeah. Uh, I think the best thing that research can do is value difference, specifically for research, because we come across different people all the time, not just in call, quant, whatever, you know, like, like we come across lots of different people all the time. And if it's the same person looking at the problem, you're not going to be as good at your job. Yeah. The best teams I've been on have been when people have just come from things from a totally different perspective and you get proper thesis, antithesis, synthesis. And that's where you end up with really good proper insight, you know, yeah, it's lots of different perspectives boiled down into something that comes down to a human truth, I suppose, mm. which is what we're all looking for at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah, and some good arguments, I think, as well, you know, like some good healthy yeah, debate. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> you'll get, you'll get no, yeah, 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 that's quite what it is, an argument, yeah, you'll get, you'll get no, you'll, you'll get no, uh, no argument from me about arguments. <laughs> um, <and laughs> but again, I suppose that's communication style, isn't it? Or yeah. Support, which is being able to sort of just go, I disagree. Yeah. I think you're wrong. And I'm not, not being taken as, you know, an insult to uh, your mother and your ancestors. <laughs> yeah. So what advice would you give to somebody um, with a sort of similar background to you kind of starting their, their career in market research today? Oh, that's a good question. I, I, well, first thing, go for it. Go for it. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's a great industry to be part of. It isn't. So I'm conscious of the picture that it could be painting here because we're talking about improvements. But anytime you talk about improvements, it makes it sound like everything's terrible because you just focus on the bad. Generally, people are lovely, open-minded, great. You can flourish. I think you have to make a call reasonably early on as to whether you are going to be a sort of disruptor or upsetter, or whether you're going to be a, an adapter. Mm. And I think you've got to be at peace with that. Yeah. And I think some of my angry young man issues are probably because I wasn't at peace at that. I didn't know, you know, I sort of veer wildly from being one or the, to the other and mm. never really feeling true to myself. And I think that, that's, that's a key bit of, you know, like, what are you going to do? Are you going to... Are you going to fight the good fight? And therefore, you have to be aware of the consequences and implications of that, which could be, you know... It being a bit, you being labelled as difficult, you having a bit of a difficult time, mm-hmm. people not truly understanding what you're trying to achieve, whether you're whether it's well-meaning or not. People not, I suppose, no, people not seeing the well-meaning 
aspects of what you're doing. Mm. Essentially, you can be very able to disruptive, a troublemaker, you know, that yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah. And, and also, you might have no impact. First of all, this is true of standing up for something in, in life more generally, isn't it? But, but I mean, it, and the implications of not doing so, of, of, of adapting and maybe staying quiet, are that you probably have an easier life externally. You might not feel as at peace with yourself internally. Mm. And those, those are difficult those are difficult questions. All right, we have two last things I want to cover. So uh, the first is a question. So, so what are your hopes for the future on this, in, on this issue? On this issue, but you know, issue. diversity and inclusion in the market research industry. Well, I, I, I hope that the gains that have been made are built upon. I think my great hope is that it becomes so ingrained that it becomes implicit that people behave this way, not just talk about it. Slightly changing the mindset, this is something that we have to do and it's going to make our life more difficult and, yeah, it's the right thing, but it doesn't pay and all that kind of stuff. I, I don't think that's true, actually. Mm-hmm. I think if ultimately if you should do this, if for no other reason, out of your own self-interest as an agency or as a practitioner or as whatever, because you will be better at your job, it will pay back. So the last, this is the last thing we're going to talk about. I asked um, you and every other one of my guests to choose a song um, to sort of encapsulate your experience in, of your career in, in market research. So it'd be great just to hear a bit about the song you've chosen and why you chose that. Uh, I really struggled with this one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, well, I think this might be due to my musical taste because it all came across as very chippy. So I, I chose a song called Immigrants We Get the Job Done, which is actually from Hamilton. And it's, the reason I particularly like it is that I, I like Riz Ahmed, who has, you know, he's, he's quite vocal about what it's like to be a second generation immigrant. And, and so I suppose not even that, I don't know, if he's second generation. It's about dual identities, I suppose, is what he, you know, he's very vocal on. And mm-hmm. he's written excellent pieces. And there's a fantastic book on this subject called The Good Immigrant. It's an anthology. It's a collection of pieces by people like Akela and, you know, Manwis Ahmed and that kind of stuff, you know, mm-hmm. talking about what it's like to be uh, an immigrant here. And anyway, I mean, this, 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 this song is about, you know, the struggles that, frankly, my parents had and I had when I was very little about living in a new place, which I don't feel I have now at all and haven't had for a long time, but my parents definitely did. And it's also about their productivity, actually. It's about how in the face of this, you are actually highly productive, hardworking, dedicated, on a mission <laughs> to a certain degree because of this, sort of, I suppose, in some ways you feel you owe your parents, I think. Mm-hmm. And you you understand the sacrifice that has been made for you and you have to pay that back mm-hmm. in space. And that's, that's, that's a key driver. A, a lot of sacrifices have been made along the way to get me to, to whatever position I am now. And then they, that's in the song when they do say, you know, look how far I come, which is not necessarily about your status, but also about the distance travelled, I think. Mm-hmm. But also that the, the job isn't done yet. And I also like it because it's uh, partly in Spanish and it's my Chilean roots. I like Spanish uh, language music. Great, great choice. Um, well, I will play it out as we end this episode. Thanks very much for uh, for having me on. Thank you. Get 
the job done. Thank you for listening and join me next week when I'll be catching up with my second guest of the series, Katie Gross, who is Senior Vice President of Sales and Customer Success for the Americas at SIS.